0: I always like to, before we start our study, to just point out the gold insert in your service folder. Sometimes our guests aren't aware that uh, that can be used as we study God's word together, as there's an outline of where we're going and things to fill in if you'd like. I I don't know um, if it's because my kids are getting older or because culture just slowly amps up throughout the years and centuries and, and decades Or maybe it's just a little bit of both, but as I've gotten older, I found that it becomes harder and harder to seemingly manage the family according to the way that God has lined out for us. Things get so busy. And one of the things that happens is that it is just far easier to just get through the next week, to just get through the next season, to grit your teeth and get through the next year, than it is to stop and to check the gauges of your family and to sort of look under the hood. (laughs) Now, why is, why don't we stop? It's not because you don't love your family. I think it's, first of all, what I already said, it's easier to just keep going, and secondly. If we do stop to check the gauges, we might not like what we're going to find. And then there's more guilt, and then there's other things that have to be fixed, and it's just harder. But let me ask, what's better in the long run? I had a high school teacher that told us a story about his life. and When he was a teenager, he got his very first car. And I don't know if it was, he said, because of youthful like ignorance or just not recognizing that this needed to happen or whatever it was. But besides the gas gauge, he never checked any of his gauges. Never checked under the hood. In fact, he never took out the oil dipstick, never changed the oil. Two years. Never changed the oil. Guess what happened at the end of two years? His car exploded, not literally, but the transmission seized up and it died. Now, in the short term, my teacher saved some time, didn't he? For two years, he didn't have to pay for an oil change. For two years, he didn't have to go and, you know, wait as someone does it or take the time to get rid of the oil if you're doing it yourself. But in the long run, his car died. I think it's the same with families, my friends. We planned this series probably six to nine months ago for this very time because we knew... Six to nine months ago, we just kind of know the future, exactly what you'd be feeling after this week of the year. At least 95% of you. With new schools or school for the first time or kids leaving the home or new things at church and all of the above or grandkids doing this or that, whatever it is in your family. And we knew it's just easier to kind of... Grid our teeth and to get through it but the thing is we love you too much and so we decided to do this series right now where we're gonna force you and me to stop to lift the hood and to check your familial gauges and yes sometimes it might be a little guilt sometimes it may mean some work but what's better in the long run and when you consider a series on family in some ways, it's pretty easy, right, because all of you have family. On the other hand, it gets a little bit tricky because none of our families are exactly the same. And how do you share God's word with people that all have unique family situations? I mean, think about it. Some of you, um, some of you are single. Some of you are married. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are remarried. Some of you are widows. Some of you have kids, some of you want kids, some of you wanted kids, but now that you have them, you're not sure you want them every day. (laughs) Some of you have been married for a long time, some of you are newlyweds, some of you have kids who are really little, medium-sized kids, some of you have kids who have their own kids, right? And so we have diverse families. There is no single family in this room that is exactly the same. As I thought about that, there though are at least two things that I'm going to mention that we all have in common. One of them is this, that you did not have a choice when it comes to your family of origin, did you? They say you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. It's true, isn't it? And in fact, when you were a kid, and maybe sometimes as an adult, you at times look at other families and, and you thought as a kid, ooh, it would be nice to be a part of that family. They have no rules, no curfew. They eat ice cream every night, go to sleep watching TV. Their mom is so nice, their dad is so cool, I wish I was a part of that family. And the reason why sometimes we're soured on our own family at times, is because of the other thing, and get this, the grass isn't always greener, the other thing that is true about every single family. I have a dysfunctional family, and so do you. We all have dysfunction in our family, and if we don't think we do, then we need to talk, because here's the one common thread that makes every family dysfunctional, is that it is made up of sinful, flawed Selfish people. Every family in this room. And so that's what especially makes family life hard. Is that when you actually get in a family, sin messes things up. Um, here's the thing. The best parents I know are people that don't have kids yet. In fact, I was a much better parent before I had kids because man when I was thinking about it ooh, I was gonna be patient and wise and the coolest dad around right and my kids were gonna always listen and obey and like Solomon wrote they were gonna get up in the morning and call their mother blessed every day and then I had four kids and they have a sinful dad and husband And I was a much better husband when I was engaged to be married and telling Carrie all about the things that I was going to do for her and how I was going to act. Of course, I'm going to be these romantic things I'm doing while we're, oh, for the rest of our lives, dear. And I'm always going to be forgiving and all of that. And then we get married and I'm not the husband always that I projected that I would be before I got married. And in fact, you look throughout the Bible, and you start feeling better about your family in some ways, actually, because there is no example of a perfect family in the Bible, and in fact, it's really hard to find even a good family in the Bible. The very first family, let's start there, the very first family had the benefit of a perfect wife and a perfect husband and a perfect world. And it was before they even had kids that they brought sin into their marriage, and into their family. And then, a decade or two later, I don't know how long it was, what happened in their family is something that for most of our families, we haven't had to deal with. At least one thing, which is this, that one of their sons killed another one of their sons. The very first family that started out perfectly had a homicide, a murder within their family. And you go throughout the pages of Scripture and you see within the family there being murder and adultery and incest and civil war. David and Absalom, many Israelites killed through the war because they did not get along. You see, well, some of us maybe have thought about selling our brother or sister. Joseph's brothers actually did sell Joseph into slavery. There is not the perfect family in the Bible. You know what? There is. There's direction about what that looks like. There isn't the example of the ideal family in the Bible or in this room, but there is direction in the Bible about what the ideal family looks like. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, is understanding that my family is real, and there's challenges, but looking at what the ideal is, ideal versus real. And what do we do with that gap? We're going to talk about that today, but before we do, we're going to spend some time looking at Paul, his summary of how the family ideally should act and interact, okay? And to do that, we turn to Colossians chapter 3. So if you have a family, listen because this applies to you. If you don't have a family, you can leave right now, and, you know, this won't apply. Verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a perfect way to start a discussion about the family. And here's why. Naturally, what do we do? Naturally and most easily, we act and interact in word and deed with our family in connection to how they, in word or deed, interact with us. That's what we do naturally. So, husbands, it's you're kind to your wife most easily when your wife is kind to you. And wives, your understanding of your husband most often and most easily when your husband is understanding of you. And kids, you are respectful and you honor and you listen to your parents most easily when they are kind of doing what you want them to and listening to you. (laughs) And the natural inclination of our sinful hearts is to act and interact with our families on the basis of how they are acting and interacting and speaking and dealing with us. And I know why you do it, because I have that same tension in my heart and it is so much easier to be nice when I'm being, being nice too. But you know what the ideal is? That how your parent, spouse, or, or uh, husband or wife interact with you has no bearing. On how you act and interact with them. That whether in word or deed, you do all things to the glory of God and in reaction to how He has loved you. And that's been established. And it's never changing. How does God love you? Well, He sends His Son, right? How has God loved you? He gave you a family and then made you a part of his family through Jesus' death and resurrection. He's forgiven you all your sins. And now we have this privilege of living our lives and interacting with others based on that. It's as if you're going to God and you say, hey, Lord, you've done this great thing for me by saving me. How can I show you love? And he says, love the people around you and your family. But Lord, I want to know what I can do for you. What can I do for you? And he says, this is what you can do for me. Take all that love and appreciation you have and selflessly love your family the way I have loved you. And then Paul gets specific with that umbrella. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I know that S-word up there is not one that many of us like, right? We've talked about this a few times over the years. And I think one of the reasons why culture doesn't like the S-word, submit, is because culture doesn't really understand, nor do we, because there's baggage that goes along with the English word submit that was not part of the Greek word "hypatasso," but this is just the closest word that we have in the English. Because the baggage that comes with submit is this idea in the English of, you right away think of forced submission, you think of a slave master forcing his slave or her slave to do what you want them to do. You think of someone being superior, someone being inferior. You think of someone being strong, someone being weak. But that's not at all what God has called Christian wives to. Simply stated, this word in the Greek means that Christian wives will be willing to put Their husband's wishes, wants, and desires ahead of their own. That they love their husband, but it closes as is fitting in the Lord, love God enough to put their husband's wishes, wants, and desires ahead of their own. And guys, we're going to talk about your Christ like leadership in just a moment. But ladies, this isn't something you're forced to do. In fact, if your husband starts, like, using passages against you like this, he is not doing what he's supposed to do. This is something you give, not something that is forced. But can I say this to all you single ladies? I got your attention. If you're not married, ladies, listen closely. This has everything to do with what type of of man you are going to someday be looking for, are currently looking for, to be your husband. Because you, as a Christian woman, have been called by God to follow the Christ-like leadership of two people, two men, Jesus and your husband. And the very most important thing, if you're going to carry out Paul's direction for the ideal family, is to find a husband who follows Christ's leadership. And submits himself to the Lord first and foremost. And guys, that responsibility is on us. And ladies, when your husband is leading you in the direction of Christ, he's leading you in a direction you want to go anyway, right? And what a blessing it is to be able to follow the leadership of a Christ-centered husband. Guys, uh, Paul continues with you. husbands. Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. These two verses seem so old-fashioned in culture today. But the interesting thing is, is that if you went back to the time of Jesus, the way that culture had devolved or evolved away from God's direction, this was some radical, radical stuff that changed culture and how culture had reacted centuries. Because men were considered to be superior at the time of Jesus. And husbands or men, they were harsh with their slaves, they were harsh with their animals, they were harsh with their wife. And they were treated more like a possession at times in that culture. And Jesus comes and says, no, there is neither male nor female. We are all part of God's family. This isn't right. Your wife is as important to me as you are. You're not better than your wife. You're called, though, to love her. To be the leader by how you love her. And in some places, the New Testament says, guys, that we are to love our wives more than we love ourselves. In another place, it says that we are to love them as Christ loved the church. Next passage to children. Children... Obey your parents in everything, for they own the house and are bigger than you, and if you don't, you're punished. That's how we feel sometimes, kids, right? It has nothing to do with your dad. It has nothing to do with your mom. It has everything to do with pleasing God in this way, and that God has appointed and given you your mom and your dad. One word of application to adult children like I am and many of you are, who have parents. Even into their old age, this is for us. And if you don't like what your parents say or do, or maybe they're even flat out wrong, we will, as we follow this, Act and react to them in a different way than we would the neighbor down the street. Even if they're as wrong as the neighbor down the street, there's the special place they have that God has appointed and that there's a special respect and honor we have for them until they leave this earth. And finally, verse 21, Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become... Discouraged. Uh, another word for embitter is to frustrate. And Paul here could have probably, this is true for ladies or moms as well, but there's a reason why Paul singles out dads here. One of them is because we're the, the leaders of our home. Secondly, I don't know always why this is, but you know it to be true that dad's words at times are heavier on our children than mom's words, and so that dads need to be extra careful with the words that they use. And this does not mean that you always agree with what your children do, but that instead of reacting with words that are harsh and words that are out of frustration, that we have those difficult words. But dads, we take time to... think about is this the best way to say it or am I putting a weight on my children that I didn't intend with the words that I'm sharing? And that's Paul's summary of the ideal family. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Wives, submit to your husband's Christ-like leadership. Children, Obey and honor your parents and dads. Quit irritating your kids. (laughs) Now what? (laughs) Because if you were really tracking with me, if you were in it with me, your heart and mind, you're thinking probably of more examples of where you don't do this than what you do. What do you do with that? You're feeling right now like if someone came to me with a basketball and a 10-foot rim and said, Ben, dunk this. Okay. No, I'm telling you, dunk this. What do you do with that? There's this tension, huh, between the ideal family that we just read about and you'll be hearing about over the next four weeks and the real of your family, and there's a gap. And what do you do with the gap? Do you know what many do? They move the line, <laughs> old-fashioned, not realistic, not all-encompassing enough. And they just kind of move the line to where they feel right and good about things. And in the short term, like my teacher with his car, ooh, they feel better. In the long run, you move the line, and like my teacher's car, it is not good. You see, these words that Paul shares aren't like some latest book by Dr. Phil that you can choose to follow or not to follow depending on what your family is like. As I said earlier, these are words given by who? By the one who created marriage and created the family. And every family will be better when guys, we lead with Christ-like leadership. And every family will be better when wives follow their husband's Christ-like leadership. And every family will be better, children, when you obey and respect your parents. And yet it's hard. And yet, we don't do it. And so in this series, we're going to bump into this gap. And so what I'm going to close with right now, as you've been given this weight. Maybe I've embittered you a little bit today, right? You've been given this weight on your shoulders, okay? And what we're going to do is is we're going to close with two points that you're going to need throughout this entire series and hopefully way beyond with your family. And the first one is this, as you consider that gap. With God's help, we don't move the line, but we pursue that which is ideal. It's harder It's frustrating, but we don't, as Christians, move the line because God has given us the ideal. And when we relentlessly pursue that which God wants, guess what we're doing? We're giving glory to God, because in all things we do it for the glory of God, right? And secondly, we're going to have a better family. It just is. When you follow the Creator's direction, you'll have a better family. And the second thing, as we go forward. When we fall short of the ideal, and we will, then I want you to not despair, but to know that God has removed the weight from your shoulder and to rejoice in God's grace. We feel hopeless. We feel guilty. We feel helpless. And then guess what? Jesus comes into the picture, and the picture changes. Um... There's this, this thing that Jesus said right after John three sixteen to a man named Nicodemus that I think makes all the difference in how we view Jesus coming to this earth. It's John 3, verse 17, and it says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his main reason for being here, Jesus, but he came to save the world through him. You know what that means? That when Jesus came to this earth, he taught about the ideal family and did not make any excuses for it. He didn't move the line. He taught about how to, the ideal way that we are to live as God's children and did not move the line. In fact, in many ways, he raised it. But he didn't just come to condemn the world. All that would have been is him come down, tell us what the, uh, the ideal is and say, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You're not doing it. See you later. Bye. But that's not what he did, is it? Yes, he was not willing to move the line of the ideal. But then he stayed on this earth because he knew we wouldn't keep it. And he died so that we don't have to keep it perfectly. He died so that we know that our weight has been taken off of our shoulders. So what these two things mean for us is this. You leave here today and you think about whatever verses we talked about today that apply to you and it's renewed vigor, renewed strength. You pursue that. You do not move the line. I do not move the line. I pursue that ideal. And then when I go to bed tonight and I'm honest and I see that I haven't kept it, I realize Jesus didn't come into this world just to make me feel bad and to condemn me, but he came to save me. And you, you, before you go to bed, you spend a moment being showered by God's grace and know that your sins are forgiven. And then you get up tomorrow, and when it comes to the context of your family, you make no excuses, you don't move the line, you pursue the ideal. And then when you go to bed and you realize you weren't perfect, you spend some time remembering that God did not send Jesus to condemn you but to save you. And you rejoice in God's grace and forgiveness. And then you get up the next day. You need me to continue? Do the same thing for the rest of the days of your life. You don't move the ideal. Rejoice in God's grace. And guess what? God keeps forgiving as we trust in Him. And also then we, in response, keep pursuing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a heavy thing, Lord we thank you that you have not only given us this direction but you've promised us your strength and you've also promised us your forgiveness in Jesus. Lord help us if we're still not convinced that this is the right way or the best way, just convince us that you know best and to help us with our whole heart to pursue that ideal and to rejoice in your forgiveness. Lord, also today as we have a chance to install a, a number of people who are part of our education volunteers this year, we just ask you to bless and guide their work, we thank you for their willingness, we thank you for their gifts, and we ask you to bless them during this education season. Finally, Lord, as we look at our world, it um, certainly isn't a peaceful time, especially as we think of things in Syria and those surrounding area there, it might be that we even are a little scared. Lord, you are the one who holds the world in your hands and we put our trust in you in times of fear. We ask that you would guide our leaders to make good, wise decisions and then to find our peace in you. All this we ask in Jesus' name and we continue by praying.